Well, good morning, church. How we doing? I'm Scott Weatherford. Glad you're here. Uh, that music, uh, you know, this is the, there's two more weeks left in the pursuit, and then you're going to be done with that epic music. But uh, there's more to come. I, I just talked with the, the guy who produces our bumper videos, and he's bringing out a new one for our next series, uh, First Life. So that starts uh, September the 10th. Now, I had to make a tough call this week, a really tough call. The church I started in Victoria, Texas, I celebrating their 25th anniversary on September the 10th. But I told them, I have a job. I have to be at Wimberley to aggravate you guys that Sunday. So I'll be here on the 10th, okay? Is, is that all right? So I'm going to do a video greeting to them, and I wish them well. And I've been gone 10 years. They don't remember who I am. You know that? Uh, and, and that's okay. That really is okay because... It's not important about who I am, it's important who Jesus is. Would you guys agree with that? Now, I'm not just saying that as a palitude, I'm saying that as a life commitment. Because literally, in 100 years from now, nobody will remember who you are. But will they remember who Jesus is because of who you are? And my prayer is that we'll live to make Jesus famous. Now, some of you have noticed I, I wear a yellow wrist bracelet, and some of you have picked up a yellow wrist bracelet. If you've got one on, hold, hold up your hand so we can see you. There's, there's a few of the, of the noble, the proud, the brave, the ones who are truly spiritual. Uh, Dan, do you have one on? No? Okay. All right. Well, that just blew that theory, didn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> Dan's going to leave and go get his. Now, these, uh, these bracelets say, offer Jesus. If you would like one, I'm not going to make you wear one. I won't embarrass you publicly much. You, uh, you can pick one up on the way out. There's some uh, available at the information booth back there. So, Tara and I lived in Jacksonville, Florida for about six years. Our kids were born there. You know, we're from Florida. We, I grew up in the panhandle of Florida, or what some people would call lower Alabama. Uh, so, people ask me where I'm from. I said, I'm from L.A., lower Alabama, yeah. And the beautiful beaches there. And there's not quite uh, such a robust place in the world for redneck to be on display than the beaches of northwest Florida. It's incredible. Uh, place. Some, some of y'all are looking at me. I, I have lived in Texas for a long time, and I will tell you something. Northwest Florida can out-redneck Texas, period, because <laughs> that's where I'm from. I get it. But Tara grew up in uh, Tallahassee. We met in, at Florida State, went off to seminary in New Orleans, came back to Georgia, moved to Jacksonville, Florida. And Jacksonville, Florida, would, you would consider rather a tropical place, right? Somewhat, right? One Christmas, it snowed in Jacksonville. We were like two inches of snow. Now, typically, you know, we had Christmas Eve services, and I was the minister of music and youth and anything else the pastor didn't want to do at a church in Jacksonville, Florida. And uh, so we had church on, on Christmas Eve, and it snowed two inches of snow. Now, typically what we would do is that we would do Christmas Eve, then on Christmas Day, Tara and, and Caleb and Kayla, our kids, we would drive across Florida uh, down I-10 to see our parents. And my parents lived course, in the, the Fort Walton Beach, Destin area, Tara's parents lived right outside of Tallahassee. Tara's dad was a prison warden. He was running the institute, the prison for the criminally insane at the time. I'd call him and say, Jim, how's work? He said, it's a nut house around here. <laughs> just, he said, I got one guy, he's better. He thought he was Jesus, now he's just the sheriff of the universe. So it was that kind of crazy thing. So on Christmas Day, uh, about 1990, 80, 89, 90, kids were little. 
We, we launched out from Jacksonville to go see our parents for, for, thank, for Christmas. And um, we're driving a Honda Civic, which uh, in that time was, you know, it was in Northwest Florida, you know, it's a Honda Civic. Not everybody's driving those things. Everybody's driving one now, but not in those days. So we were delayed in leaving. We had to wait for the snow to melt on the Matthews Bridge so we could go across. And then I don't know if you've ever been on I-10, but I-10 is just like, it's miles of nothing but pine trees, an occasional place where you stop and you don't want to stay long where you stop. It's just kind of, that's just the way it is. And we got about halfway between Jacksonville and Tallahassee, and my car began to overheat. And so I pull into a rest area, and I pop the hood like I know what I'm doing. And I'm standing there looking at the thing, and I'm clueless. Yeah, I, I'm just looking at it. I've got two little kids in the car. It had snowed, so it was cold. And so I knew we were going to freeze to death. We were all going to die during the rest area. And there was a hungry bear in the woods. Uh, not really, just makes for a better story. And, and I was just like, now what are we going to do? And about that time, a car pulled up beside us. And this lady gets out, and she goes, Tara Ivy. Now, that's Tara's maiden name, Ivy. Tara Ivy, how in the world are you? I looked at her, and she looked at, uh, looked at, I looked at, I was like, what's going on? And she, they were in youth group together when they were kids at the church Tara grew up with. And immediately, that, their husband, the husband, he actually had a clue. He goes, yeah, it's your thermostat. So uh, let me take you guys up here and drop you off, and <clears throat> I'll get a mechanic, get a part, we'll come back and fix this thing, you'll be on your way. What? <laughs> so they take us up to this little truck stop area, and there happened to be a, a part place open. Actually, I think they woke the guy up and got a part for us. They went back and fixed our car. They paid for our supper. And then we were back on the road to see our parents. You know, what that reminded me of is this, that we as a church are to be people of rescue. You know, God had the right people at the right time, at the right place, right when we needed it. Now, some of you could say, ah, oh, it's just serendipitous, just something that happens. But I don't think you go through life that way. I think we have a God who's in front of us, who is behind us, who is over us and beneath us and beside us, that nothing happens to us that are out of his control. And that day on that road in Florida reminded me that God wants me to be rescued by him, but also reminded me that he's sending people to rescue me. That people come into my life that, that can bring hope and life and peace. Uh, last night I woke up just perplexed about America, just burdened about America. And what I think America needs more than anything right now is hope. We need reconciliation and we need hope. Trivial things that do not matter have become driving forces that are driving us apart. And we need hope. And we need rescue. And we cannot do that in isolation. And I believe that we, the people of God, have got to stand for hope. Got to stand for life. Got to stand against hatred and bigotry. And violence only begets violence, but love begets Restoration. 
And as I prayed about this, I thought about this last night, I got to thinking about the church. What are we here for? If we're not here because we've been rescued, and then we're not here in order to rescue others, then what are we doing? Now, you've heard me say this before, and I want you to hold on to this because I think there's some pretty deep theology here. Your view of Jesus shapes your view of the church, and it shapes your view of our mission in the world. You've heard me say that, right? If you haven't, you, you will. You'll hear me say that a lot because I really believe it's true. What you think of Jesus is what you think of the church, which is what you think we ought to be about. Tom Rainer, who's the president of Lifeway Resources, did a survey of pastors and churches. 90% of the pastors that he surveyed said the church existed to be the hope of the world. 90% of the congregants he surveyed said the church existed to meet my needs. That's a huge discrepancy, isn't it? Huge. And we could say that, well, that, that makes sense. But here lies the problem. I've been a pastor now for 36 years. And to see a church that is so self, selfless, that says we don't exist for our care and our comfort and our convenience. We exist to be people of rescue. We exist to be the hope of the world. Is invigorating. Is powerful. Is life-changing. Now, I'm like you. I, I enjoy I enjoy coming up here uh, on Sundays to see you guys. I do. I look forward to it. I get up on Sunday mornings and, uh, and yeah, I get, get dressed. I put on these awesome shirts. And, and I look forward to it. I drive through purgatory to see you guys. And, and I look forward to the, to the fellowship. I look forward to, uh, to the encouragement. Look forward to the, I look forward to aggravating you guys. I really look forward to that. Because I think aggravation can be a love language, and that's what I'm, I do. But you know what? It's not about me. It's not about what I want. You see, it's about the Lord and what he wants. And when we do what God wants, you know what he'll do? This is what he'll do. He'll meet your needs. He'll fill your heart with hope and love. And he'll make sure you're well-fed spiritually. But that's the byproduct of living all for him. And the church, interesting, you read in Hebrews, it said, don't forsake the assembling together so we can spur one another on to love and good deeds. That we could be actually a people of rescue. I think sometimes we get happy with Jesus as our personal Savior, and it just kind of stops there. Instead of saying, not only is Jesus our Savior, he sends us out into the world to rescue others. And the worst to be full of hope. I said this a couple of weeks ago, and I had some folks wrinkle their nose at me, that in Scripture, you don't find any place that says share your faith. Peter says to share your hope. Share your hope. And my story of hope is pervasive, and it's life-changing. And Jesus is the rescue. He's the rescuer. And he invites us who follow him into that task into that people of rescue and when we desire what god desires he makes sure we're taken care of you so the false view of the christ produces a false view of the church produces a false view of our mission of the world and i believe it falls us into the trap of what i call cultural christianity or 
a term that I've coined, churchianity. And I know that God doesn't want us to do that. Now, we're coming to the end of this series on the pursuit. We've got two more weeks. Uh, next week, I'm going to be talking about how mercy rules our lives. And then the next week, I'm going to talk about the ripple effect, how your life leaves awake. I know that's Labor Day weekend. I don't want you to miss it. In fact, let's have a great crowd on Labor Day. Let's invite people that are coming in to enjoy the, our beautiful waters in this uh, resort area to come and, and fill the house to hear about how to live a godly legacy. But here in 2 Samuel, now we've been in 2 Samuel for a while, uh, actually all summer. David is on the run from his, so, his son Absalom. Uh, David, well, David exactly wasn't a great parent. David was, first of all, had too many wives and too many kids. That'll get you in trouble like every time. He had eight wives. He had 27 concubines. That's women who he acted like he was married with. If you don't understand what that means, Dan will be willing to share that with you. <laughs> You're welcome, Dan. Gosh, Dan, twice now I picked on you today. I, I apologize deeply, and I will not do it again until the next time. Okay. So David, David was neglectful, and Absalom actually murdered his brother, and then Absalom had created a revolt. And then David now is being threatened, his life being threatened with the overthrow of his kingdom by his son. And this account we see in 2 Samuel is how God took an adversary and made him into a rescuer. And how the great king David was rescued by an unexpected brother. And, and as we talk about this, I hope that your courage rises because you can see that you have been rescued and then we in turn can rescue and then we could be an army of rescuers all for Jesus. Are you guys ready for this? Let's pray. Father, thank you for what you want to say to us this morning. And I pray, Father, as I always pray, that these people will hear from you and not from me. What I have to say is nonsense and noise, but what you have to say is life and peace. And I pray, Father, that you'll customize this talk for these that, the, those that are here so their lives can be built by you. And I pray this all in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I invite you to take your, your notes out of your bulletin. Take the weekend with you. Uh, I, I, I adore my wife. She is awesome and and I noticed that today she was rummaging through her stuff. She's got so much going on, and she just loves this church, and she's investing in this church in incredible ways. And she pulled out a notebook, and what it had was a, one of our bulletins in the front of it, and it's full of sermon notes and take the weekend with you notes. And, and she actually, my wife actually takes notes on my sermon, which is amazing. I don't think she listens, and she does, and she quotes back to me. She remembers things. And, and I encourage you to do the same thing. Make it a habit of writing things down and going back and look. Uh, one of the reasons I love to journal is that I like to go back and read and, and go back and say, what, God, what are you doing in my heart at this time? And, and has it changed? And what are, what are you working on? And uh, it's cool to do. So I hope you take some notes today. So you jot some things down that may jar your memory for tomorrow. So Rescue is not on your mind until you need one. Did you know that? Until my car broke down, I never considered I needed someone to know who I was in a rest area. I, I didn't. There are times that I've been surfing in the Gulf 
where I've watched people almost drown and I paddle out and I put them on my board and I paddle them back in and, and literally rescue them. They don't even know they needed a rescue because they got into water uh, that was over their heads and they were just dangerous and most of it was out of ignorance. Did you know that? My stupid caused most of my problems. Am I by myself? All right, there's a few honest folks in the room. David needed a rescue. And rescue's not on your mind until you need one. Let me read for you. This is in 2 Samuel 15, 13. A messenger soon arrived in Jerusalem to tell David, all of Israel has joined Absalom in the conspiracy against you. Let me say this to you. This is a leadership lesson. When people come to you and say, everybody is against you, the truth is only a few are against you, and this person who just said that is the center of the instigation. I've learned this as a pastor. Pastor, many people have come to me and said, this translates, I have gone to many people and complained. <laughs> just the way it works. So you're going, he knows. Yeah, I do. I was born at night, just not last night. Okay. Then, then we must flee at once or it'll be too late, David urged his men. Hurry. If we get out of the city before he arrives, both we and the city of Jerusalem will be spared from the disaster. Now, why did David say this? A very interesting caveat. Because David's not only concerned about his household, because in the ancient world, when a king was overthrown, everybody in the king's household was murdered. Everyone. Uh, wives, servants, children, everyone. And they, he knew Absalom was going to come in and he was going to kill everyone. Plus, anyone that was suspected of being loyal to the old king was going to be murdered as well. So there was a huge bloodbath that was going to happen. And David, wanting to preserve the kingdom from the bellicose behavior of Absalom, he said, we all must all flee so it won't create disaster for everyone. Now, oftentimes, you'll find a leader who is self-centered will say, we're going to stand and fight to the last man. But David, thinking forward, he said, we got to go so we can save everyone else. And not only me, but everyone else. And the backstory here was Absalom was in complete, total rebellion. Now, the Bible describes Absalom as one of the most beautiful men who've ever lived. Of course, that's before current days, and some of you guys have eclipsed that. In the dark, I'm a very good-looking man. I just want you to know, okay? So, but this disaster was brewing in David's life because of neglect. And it started with David's neglect of uh, Bathsheba. Now, I didn't talk about David and Bathsheba in this series of The Pursuit because I'm saving that for another series we're going to talk about called Restoration how God restores a life. And Nathan the prophet told David that the Lord's going to forgive you, but you're going to have to live with the consequences of your sin. Man, isn't that the truth? God forgives us, but our choices lead to destinies, lead to consequences. And part of the consequences of David's sin, <coughs> excuse me, was the rebellion of Absalom. And so this was brewed in a cauldron of neglect. And I've discovered in my life, most of the time when I get in trouble, it's because I've neglected something. 
I've neglected something. I've neglected spending time with Jesus. But folks here, I want to tell you something about spending time with Jesus. God's not into karma. You don't do good in order to get good. You get good because God's good. Are, are you with me on that? Why I spend time with Jesus is so Jesus will transform my character so I won't be a pain to you. You need me to spend time with Jesus, don't you? I need you to spend time with Jesus. We need to spend time with Jesus personally so we can build relationships deeply. Does that make sense? That's why we provide so much stuff for you to take the weekend with you so that your life could be built by God so we could have the riches of relationship. In the 99 days of prayer, and we're on day 38, by the way, the 99 days of prayer, we spent this first part of this prayer time focusing in on personal renewal, getting right with the Lord personally. Now, this next section, we're focusing on getting right with Jesus corporately, relational renewal, that we'll really love each other deeply from the heart. And my neglect creates most of my problems that causes me to need rescue. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? Works in my relationships. It works in my health. It works in my spiritual life. I need to be disciplined and not neglectful because neglect will lead usually to disaster. Now, with this backstory about David and Absalom and the curse there, I need to say this because some of you are really struggling with this. You are, not you are responsible for how you raise your children. Raise them up in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. It says that in Ephesians chapter 6. Don't provoke them to anger, fathers. It says that. The Bible also says in Proverbs, train up a child in the way he should go and he was old, he is not depart, right? So you are responsible for how you raise up your children. But I want to say this to you. This is going to be freeing for some of you. You are not responsible for their adult behavior. In the book of Titus, it talks about uh, elders. It says elders are manage their own household and manage their children. And the word for children there is tatalistos, which means small child, a child under your authority. Let me say this to you. Never tie your spiritual vitality to the behavior of your adult children. Is that helpful? So we all are going, huh? Never tie your spiritual vitality to the behavior of your adult children. Can I get a witness? Yeah. And I, I've said this before, and I want you to hold on to it. You're only as happy as your most miserable child. Ain't that the truth? And some of you come in this morning with great burdens, and you feel like God has left you because of your children and their behavior, their, your adult children. I will tell you, he hadn't left you, and he hadn't left them. He has not left them. And he is faithful. Things are never too hard for God. Never too hard for God. God never sits on his throne in heaven, wringing his hands. Oh my, I just don't know what I'm going to do. That's us. 
Dan and the choir led us in the perfect song, You Are God Alone. Before time began, you were on your throne. Hmm. You see, in this account of David, and we're going to push on this a little further, that God is always sending people to help you. He's always sending people to help you because he loves you that much. Isn't that, isn't that kind of neat to know that he's kind of working it out and he's sending people that he's got the right people at the right place at the right time and he's putting the unction on their heart to, to lean in. You broke it down in the middle of I-10 in the rest area and somebody pulls up that went to church with your wife. What's up with that? That's a divine orchestrated rescue. And I could give you hundreds of those things. Y'all, we were in Kinshasa, Democratic Republic of Congo. It is the heart of an apocalyptic zone. Our flight was canceled. Our handlers, and you need handlers there to keep you from being robbed and kidnapped, had left us in the airport when they announced our flight had been canceled. And then the airport, the, the officials there, Belgium Air, said, oh, we're going to transport you to a hotel where you'll spend the night that we'll bring you back tomorrow. I go over my dead body, literally. Because that, that is the way Americans get abducted. I said, we're not going to do that. And so I went to Air France, and I was trying to talk to them about buying a ticket so we could fly out to Paris, and, and they, they did not polyvoo my Francais. <laughs> Up walks a Christian humanitarian relief worker from Belgium who's fluent in French and English, and he works out the details for us to get out of Kinshasa. We don't even think he was real. We think he was an angel. He actually gave up his seat that we might fly out. He said, Pastor, don't worry. I work in Africa. They will not take me. And I can tell you over and over and over the times of rescue. Let me read on for you out of this passage in uh, 2 Samuel, look at verse 16, 15, 16. We are with you, his advisors replied, do what you think is best. So the king and his household set out at once. Then the king turned to said to Itiah, the leader of the men from Gath. The leader from the men from where? Who else is from Gath? Goliath, Goliath from Gath. Where was Gath? A Philistine town. Itiah was a Philistine. Why are you coming with us? Go back to King Absalom, for you are great, for you are a guest in Israel, a foreign in exile. You arrived only recently, and, and should I force you to wander with us? I don't even know where we're going. Go back and take your kinsmen with you. And when the Lord showed you unfailing love and faithfulness. Now Itiah had six hundred faithful warriors of Gath with him. He had a Philistine army with him. And Itiah said to the king, I vow by the Lord and by your, own, by your own life, I will go wherever my Lord the king goes, no matter what happens, whether it means life or death. What? I will go where the king goes, whether it means life or death. Itiah, uh, this is This is crazy. Crazy how a former adversary becomes a rescuer. 
And as I was writing these, these talks of the pursuit, I see how God is just taking the extraordinary and he's brewing up the extraordinary. And he's doing things that are just kind of like, blow my mind. What's up with this? How does Itia get this kind of loyalty? I'm sure that Itia and David fought against each other. That David, in the 14 months he lived in Ziglag and he fought amongst the Philistines, maybe Itia saw something in David because David had a compelling something about him. As the French would say, a je ne sais quoi. As we would say, the Spirit of God on him. And Itia obviously was influenced. And what I've discovered as I read this is one of the greatest lies Satan tells us is that you're alone. Nobody knows what you're going through, and nobody's been through this before. Nobody understands about your rebellious kid because you're the only one that's ever had one. Nobody understands about your broken marriage because you're the only one that has one. No one understands about your credit card bill because you're the only person in America that has a credit card bill, which you know that's a lie. And what Satan does, he's a lion. And lions isolate their prey before they eat them. That's why you need community. That's why you need to be in a group. We talk about groups at first, whether they be on Sunday morning to gather here. We have some of the most outstanding groups in our Sunday school ministry here. You should be connected and engaged. Uh, whether you're in a group at a home or a group at a coffee shop, a group with a bunch of men or a bunch of women, doesn't matter. You need to be in a group because if you're isolated, you're going to get eaten. We might as well put a pack of toothpicks in your pocket because you're going to get eaten. And what God was saying to me here is that David, at his hour of desperation, he brought people into his life, and Itia and a group of men were one of them. God is a rescuer, and he has people at his disposal to step into your mess. Look for them. Look for them. Paul says later in, in Corinthians, he says, God's going to take the misery you're enduring to use you to minister to somebody else who's in that same misery. And, and when you're in the middle of it, learn. Learn. Because I'm going to send people into your life to help you learn, and then I'm going to send you into somebody else's life to help them learn. We're starting a ministry here this fall called Grief Share because some ladies in our church came to me, and they said, Pastor, we need to do something about people who are struggling with grief. And I said, you're right, and you're hired. (laughs) Didn't I? Yeah. And that's because misery becomes a ministry. And David was set up by God to do Now, the greatest deception in life with Jesus is not admitting you need help. And y'all, I call that play in church. That we come with our burdens, our hurts, our hang-ups, our habits, and we just pretend like we're, everything's all right. And we go through the heartache of our lives and we have, do not have a chance. And that's why you need a group, people who will bear your burdens, bear each other's burdens, thus fulfill the law, that we need a place, a safe place, that we can, we can go through life together. Because all of us have hurts, don't we? Don't we? Yeah. 
and we need to be able to bear with one another, not in condemnation and shame, but in love and peace. And, and God brought Itia into David's life that he said, you don't have to go along. And David could have said, bless God, I'm highly favored. David was on the run. And Itia said, I'm going with you. And I know it brought comfort to David because later in the account when you read that the army of David was divided into three and Itia of Gath led one of the divisions. He trusted a Philistine. I love the commitment Itia makes. Whether it means life or death, or death I'm going with you. <laughs> it reminds me of the sermon Wyatt preached at the beginning of the pursuit. If you're going up, I'm going with you, heart and soul. Let's go. Let's go. There's a theme here, a theme of unity, a theme of commitment, a theme that we're in this together that God uses for his glory. God loves unity. God loves unity. Now, I want to say to you, church, I'm with you, heart and soul. Let's go. Let's go. And the greatest thing a pastor can hear back is people from his church, from his congregation, from the people God's asking me, he said, Pastor, we are with you. You might be stupid, but we're with you. We're with you. All for Jesus. You see, David's commitment to the Lord had influenced all the men around him, even a pagan, a pagan Philistine. It's how you live your life and rescue that often shapes others' view about God. Do you know people who don't know Jesus are learning about Jesus by watching you? That ought to scare some of you to death. If you're going to drive like a fool, take the fish off your car. Just a thought. Your response to life reveals your God. You know, David influenced Itia to know God, and now he in turn rescues David. I love that. Itia is basically saying, I want to know your God because you're following him, and he's a rescuer, therefore I'm going to follow you. And Paul gives this mandate. He says, follow me while I follow Jesus. Can you say that to somebody in your life? Follow me while I follow Jesus. He said, well, Scott, that sounds awful arrogant. No, it's not. That sounds awful dependent. Because I'm following Jesus, let's go together. Come on, let's go. Who do you see that needs rescue? David replied, all right, come with us. So Itia and all his men and their families and their families and their families went with David. Yeah, Itia could have stayed there, absolutely rolled in. He goes, hey, dude, we're with you, man. All good. All my kids, we're all good. But Itia took the great chance by stepping into David's life. It's because what, um, what Itia was doing was extraordinary. Now, as I thought about this, that I've got to learn to look for people who need rescuing. I have to see people like Jesus sees people. Now, that's hard. I would prefer to see people as I would prefer to see people, as I think people should be viewed. But what Jesus said, I want you to see them like I see them. I want you to love them like I love them. And I need a transformation 
that happen. And then as I see people, as, see, as Jesus sees people, that I earn the right to step into their lives because of the love Jesus has given to me for them. I earn the right. That I lose my judgment. I stop judging for people what they ought to be according to my opinion, and I love them for where they are and let Jesus change them in what they ought to be. Now, I wrote this in my notes, and I want to just talk about it a second. No one follows a jerk. Did you know that? And when I'm a jerk, I make Jesus look like a jerk. When I'm condescending, arrogant, and condemning and judgmental, I make Jesus look like those things. And that's convicting to me. Now, does that mean I just kind of like say whatever? No. I live my life under the obedience and the commands of Jesus Christ. And I love Jesus. And I love people like Jesus loves people. In conversations with folks that I've learned that Jesus loves people, he doesn't love some future form of them, he loves them right now. And he loves them enough not to leave them the way they are. And, and looking back over my 36 years of being a pastor, I have never transformed anyone. All I've done is partner with Jesus as he's transforming me. So leverage your mess for the message of rescue. And David was humble enough to accept it, and Itia was humble enough to extend it. You see... Itia knew what it was like to be on the run. How do I know that? Because David says, you're in exile. Itia made a decision to follow David, and that made him very unpopular in Philistine, and he was literally exiled with David. And so Itia knew fully well what it meant to be on the run. What better guy to have on your side than someone who is on the run as well? Hmm. Here's the last thought, and, and, I'll, and I'll stop because I think you guys have had enough. <laughs> You've got that look on your face. We've had enough. Um, I kept messing with this talk all week, and I finally told Wyatt, I said, I got to leave this alone, or I'm going to preach for four days. So I just quit. But this last part was something that, as I, I was praying, I was writing, this came to, to me, and I added on, it's not your notes, so you want to add this to it. We partner with God in the rescue. We partner with God in the rescue. You see, God builds dream teams for his glory. David and his mighty men were a dream team for God's glory to rescue Israel from the hand of Saul, the wicked king, the ask for king, and to the, the land of being a people of God. And God had built this account. Itia comes along, a, a dream team. God builds this dream team for his glory. God, we partner with him in the rescue. He builds these teams. He puts people in time and places with intent together. He brings them together. As I looked at this deeper, I found some people that are kind of my, my heroes, as, as literary heroes. A guy named C.S. Lewis. You guys ever heard of C.S. Lewis? He wrote this book, uh, this collection of books called The Chronicles of Narnia. <clears throat> Did you know that he had a best friend who was named J.R.R. R. Tolkien? 
who wrote the book called The Lord of the Rings, did you know that Tolkien and Lewis would meet together in a pub on Oxford campus called the Rabbit Room? They would meet in the Rabbit Room, and Tolkien actually led Lewis to the Lord. Did you guys know that? That Tolkien led Lewis to the Lord. And the way he led Lewis to the Lord is he challenged him. Because Lewis was a, a pronounced academic, a brilliant mind, and one who was not rejecting or accepting Christ. And Tolkien, who, who loved Jesus, was building him, and he was an intellectual giant as well. And he says to Lewis, you have to leverage your imagination. Imagine yourself at the foot of the crucified cross, the crucified Christ. Put yourself there. And Lewis came to Christ through this rich imagination that Tolkien offered. And then they challenged each other to invade literary, uh, the literary encircles of England to write some of the most compelling novels that were written, and they wrote all for Jesus. And we have the Lord of the Rings and the Chronicle of Narnia, and Lewis goes on to write so many others because God brought them together. At Oxford University, for his glory, Years before that, on the same campus, two brothers and another preacher came together to say we have to launch a movement, a revitalization movement in the world for King Jesus. John and Charles Wesley, the two brothers, And George Wakefield, the great revival preacher of the Americas, met together on that same campus and began a movement for the glory of God, a movement of rescue. Any of you grow up Methodist? I see a, a few timid hands. <laughs> and you have the method of discipleship. That's why you're called Methodist by two Anglican boys, John and Charles Wesley, who got in trouble, Dan, because they took contemporary music and put Jesus' words into it, and some of the scathing reports were they were using the devil's music. Some things haven't changed. Stupid has a long life shelf, shelf life. But God brings these together through the course of history. And as I read this this week, I went, oh my gosh, perhaps in this place in Texas, God is assembling a dream team, a legacy rescuing dream team. Who knows what God is doing? I want to ask you a question. Who wrote the book of Thessalonians? You say it out loud. Who wrote it? Paul? Everybody agree with it's Paul? If you look at the introduction to Thessalonians, it says Paul, Timothy, and Silas wrote the book of 1 Thessalonians. 
Now, is it Pauline doctrine? Yeah, but in the introduction it said, Paul, Timothy, and Silas. Actually, the Holy Spirit wrote it, just to clear it up. But as I read this, I realize this is a dream team for rescue. And what are we doing? A few months ago, I sat in um, on the beautiful night sky in South Texas, and I had three faithful friends around a campfire. And I listened to them tell their stories. What I'm here today, actually. I listened to them talk about how God has brought them through. And as I listened to them share, I was strangely quiet, which is strange for me, because I realized that one event had led to a multitude of events. That Tara and I, in a state of being disgruntled, perhaps, maybe maybe a little rebellious, we left a traditional church and we started a non-traditional church. Actually, we left a church that was program-driven and we started a church that was biblically driven. That's really judgmental, but bear with me. I wanted to see a church that would really reach broken people. And in 1992, we left the comfort and the paycheck of an established church and we started a church in South Texas. And man, it was risky. And as I listened to those three guys tell their story, I realized it was worth it. It was about rescue. The two of them, dear brothers that served alongside me in that church, one of them, who was a pastor at a church that we helped start, that that church has 10,000 a weekend now. And our little church helped start that church. And I realized my life is worth nothing unless I'm living all for Jesus. And in the fullness of time, and the reason only God can figure out, in a moment of weakness, your pastor search team asked me to come be your pastor. <laughs> and here we are. And together, I believe God wants to use us for his glory that we might be the hope of the world. <coughs> Last year, I went to a home game at the University of Texas. Um, I went, also went to a home game at Texas A&M, so just relax, okay? <laughs> and we were there and all the regalia of Texas and Texas fight and all these things and they were running around the field with flags and a big old cow down there in the middle of, actually a bull, I guess, he's a bull. <laughs> Bevo, he's down there. And uh, I've listened to all this and then they said this, they said, the University of Texas, what starts here? changes the world. And I thought, the world's not enough. What starts here changes eternity. Why settle on changing the world? The world's broken. It's a dumpster fire. But what starts here changes eternity for you and for me that we might join God to be people of rescue. The first person to be rescued is you.
you've never given your heart to Jesus, do it. It's worth it. It's not a religion, it's a relationship. It's not something you show up to, it's something that, it's someone who shows up in you. And together, let's give our hearts and our lives to this King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and join him in the divine rescue, all for Jesus. All for Jesus.